Episode 168 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Lee Stoner. Rightio, team, welcome along to episode 168 of the Bevan James I'll Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime of exercise so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Got a pretty cool interview coming up today with a guy called Lee Stoner. He's a guy I actually met in Christchurch but now is a an associate or an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina in their sports exercise and science department. Uh, and he's a guy I actually met in Christchurch a while ago and um, he's just had a really interesting career around health and exercise. And, you know, I'm just reading a little, his little blurb about him here and it says, in short, I'm interested in tuning your ticker. More specifically, I'm interested in following the interrelated lines of inquiry with the interactions between lifestyle risk factors and cardiometabolic disease. Um, the development and interpretation of non-invasive methodologies for inserting cardiometabolic health and the translation of basic and applied science into the public health outcomes now that sounds pretty technical and the good thing about lee is he's, he's a pretty down-to-earth guy and i've actually already done the interview and uh he's just it was just a really cool discussion actually he's got some cool insights around how science approaches health and it was there's some really interesting things that we talked about so hopefully you get a lot with that interview with lee before i get into the main just a show um i haven't actually got much to talk about before the main just today which is Unlike me, because often I have a lot to talk about before the main gist of today's show. If I'm going to say anything, I'm going to say, make sure you go out and dance occasionally. On Saturday night, we had our friends over. We, for my wife's birthday, I bought her a, it was a, what was it? It was a murder mystery party. A murder mystery party for her birthday presents. And the idea is you get all your friends around, they get characters they need to dress up as they kind of go through this whole experience of a murder mystery and so you get clues and you got to solve it at the end it was heaps of fun and then at the end of the night um we've got quite a good house for entertaining so we've got a good sound system kind of in the roof which really helps um and we've got a good area where we've kind of cleared all the couches away and we just put, started pumping the music and everyone's dancing like i've got a great bunch of friends who really gets into life and we probably danced for a good maybe two, two hours, maybe a little bit over two hours. Um, and it was interesting, one of my mate Mark, who was one of my best mates, Marky Mark, he was my, my wedding partner, he was, was one of my groomsmen. Marky Mark's like a really good mate of mine and he's had a few back issues and knee problems in the last period of time. He, he was an athlete as a kid, but in the last couple of years, just, you know, hasn't been able to play much sport because of life. And he came up to me through the night and we've been dancing for a couple of hours. He said, Bev, man, I need to get my fitness up, you know, because we were, we were dancing, like, think pumping, dancing. Um, and we were dancing, it was so much fun. Um, but he was like, man, this this is a workout for me. And it, kind of, it just made me think, it just made me think, you know, dancing is a great way to exercise. And the great thing about it was you're having, we were having fun with our friends, we are having a shared experience, we were laughing, we were doing some sing-along songs. At the end of the night, we did a couple quieter sing-along songs. There's this real cool, fun connection with our best mates. But as a part of it, we're all basically exercising. And it's one of those things where, where can we disguise exercise in a way that works for us? And I think I talked recently around the whole idea of one way to really fool yourself into exercise is to buy a dog because, you know, pet owners, or particularly dog owners, will spend a lot of time exercising their pet. And the real benefit of that is, well, 
you know, you're going to get some exercise in as well. And that was what um, this experience I said they're not really reinforced to me is that exercise doesn't have to necessarily be what we traditionally think it is. You know, like on Saturday night, me and my mates, we had a really fun night together where we did a couple of hours of exercise together. And the way we were dancing, we were pretty vigorous, so it was pretty, pretty full on. But, but more importantly, that was, that was a really great workout. And I remember years ago, I had another girl I used to work in the fitness industry with, and she just loved dancing. So every Friday and Saturday night, she'd just go to a local club and just dance. And it wasn't because she was trying to get drunk or trying to pick up. It wasn't really even a social thing. She would just literally go out dancing by herself. And to me, that's just one of those kind of ways we can trick ourselves into exercise. So total side note, but if you are someone who isn't exercising, you think, oh, exercise is so hard, go out dancing. You know, and, and, and maybe one other thing to think about in regards to that is going out dancing doesn't necessarily have to mean that you are um, not, that you have to be drunk to do it. You know, like, I love dancing and I don't drink. And I remember when I first gave up drinking, I had to learn to dance without being drunk. But it's kind of the same for anyone. Just, you know, you go out and dance and have a good time. So that's kind of my first quick point before I get into the main gist of today's show. Um, I do want to thank the patrons of the show. And those include the amazing people like Sam at Squiggly Wiggly Arms Green. Uh, an amazing coach, actually, run, a coach at a running team. Um, Sam is a really great fitness professional because she knows her stuff, which is always really important, but she just has energy for people, which is pretty special, man. Like, she just has always got energy, always got a great attitude, always trying to help people. She's a really, you know, in Christchurch, you can't get too far wrong if you're using Sam Green in some way, shape or form. Olivia Wonder Girl, Alice Garland. We've got Sean Dr. Sustain at Barnes. He was actually partying on the dance floor on Saturday night as well because he knows how to rock out. We've got Samantha Magic Johnson. We've got Sally Super Trooper Lampu. And then we've got Laura Do Do A Lot. Pfeiffer. These are all people who are patrons of the show. They support the show. If you want to become a patron of the Bevan James Isles show, please go to bevanjamesisles.com. You'll see down the bottom of the page. It's just a, a bit to support what I do. Or if you go to the podcast section, you'll see there's a bit there as well. So uh, thank you to all the patrons. You really do make a big difference in what I do here. Now, the interview of Lee, there's one bit of a bummer about the interview of Lee was our Skype connection wasn't amazing so at times he does kind of cut out, and, and I have to be, admit it does happen a bit throughout the interview, but at most it's like five, ten seconds, and you kind of get the gist, the gist of what he's talking about as it does cut out. Um, it's worth persevering with. It's a pretty great interview. I really love the insight. Um, we talk about who should you trust, and it's a pretty interesting question as well. It's just really interesting to talk to someone who's deeply in academia and how they look around what it really takes to create credibility. But Lee and I are going to talk about that right now. So again, Skype's not the greatest, but overall, I think you'll get a lot out of this interview. So here is Lee Stoner right now. Okay, team, I'm very happy to have on the show today a man that I know from his times back in Christchurch, a guy called Lee Stoner. Uh, he's, he's, he's an academic man in the, in the field of health and fitness. Um, welcome along to the show, Lee. Thanks, Bevan. Um, so maybe just tell us a little bit about your kind of your history. Um, starting back through education or yeah, where yeah, I'm yeah, at now? Yeah, tell us, yeah, tell us about where, where you started um, and what got you to where you are. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, uh, I guess 
a lot of where I am actually started from sport. Um, I, uh, so I'm from Crawley in, in England originally, and I went to a, a pretty bad school. A big half of my class got expelled, um, but I, I was boxing, so I wasn't getting in trouble and doing things like everybody else. And that interest in sport wanted to make me learn more about my body. So I um, subsequently enrolled in a degree in sports sciences with management at, at Brunel University in West London. And then by halfway through that degree, I knew I wanted to be a professor. I had no idea what a professor was at that time. I just, I just knew that was something I wanted to and then um, by the end of that degree, I decided I need to do something completely different. Um, so I uh, reached out to people all across the US and Canada um, inquiring about graduate school there. And um, I built up a good rapport um, with the chap I went to work with at the University of Georgia, Kevin McCulley. Um, he's who I did my uh, master's and, and PhD with. And then uh, following that, that's when I moved to New Zealand to do um, postdoctorate work with a, a group there called the Lipid and Diabetes Research Group. And then I did, I left after a year and actually um, moved out of pure academia. I worked with a study abroad company for three years, uh, like working with, it's a New Zealand based company, but working with universities around the US to design curriculums to bring students out to the South Pacific. And I got back in the academia then after I got my travel jollies out you know for three years um, and I worked at Massey University in Wellington and I was there for four and a half years and then at that point I, I decided I, I needed the next move if I wanted to keep my um, career progressing so now I'm at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in, in the US. And what's your current role at that university? Yeah. I am uh, an assistant professor in exercise physiology. Okay, cool. So let's, let's go right back to the start then, because you said that you went to a bad school, obviously where there were lots of problems if half the kids in your class got expelled. Um, you know, you said that boxing was really important for you. Why, why was it? Because I imagine you, in, in a school like that, there were a lot of bad influences. Mm -hmm. why, why was sports so important in that, your, that moment in your life? And how did it influence you to where you are right now? Yeah, that's a that's probably a larger discussion with a couple of therapists. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I started boxing when I was twelve, and then I gave up and I started again on my fourteenth birthday. And at that point, I was really obese. I was, um, you know, thirteen at the time, and weighed two hundred pounds, which is ninety odd kilos. Mm, wow. Um, you know, and with that, of course, you have the typical problems that you, you go with your your, your self-perceived image and, and so on, the effect that that has on one psyche. Um, uh, and as soon as I got in a boxing, it just got very addictive. You know, I lost lots of weight quickly. I'm the only person I know I had my first fight at light heavyweight, you know, at 14. And then the next year I had it at lightweight, I think. Okay. I lost 70 pounds in I had some eating issues and that along the way, which many people in sport do. You know, they're things that we need to look out for. But 
but boxing is one of those things you, you can't be half fit or half into it right i mean you come unstuck very quickly because it's just you in there in the ring against someone else mm. um so uh i you know being fit and being part of boxing etc become part of my identity and um, you know when people were going out and drinking and doing things uh it wasn't that i didn't want to do it it was that I was focused on the boxing. I knew that that wouldn't be good for when I had my next fight if I wasn't so fit that next time around. Um, so as soon as I started boxing, I was already okay at school. I think I was in top set on everything, but because I wasn't boxing, I started to study more as well. I more and my, my grades got better from from doing it. And then, yeah, because it just was part of me by the end, I mean, I I, I really wanted to go and do a, a degree and learn more about physiology and, and psychology um, at that time. That's why I went to do um, sports science. At the time, I thought I was going to go and be, like, run a gym and, you know, a personal training gym or, or something such like that. Yeah. I didn't realize I was going to stay in the sciences myself it was just I was, I was doing what i was interested in basically yeah wow it, it's a really great story isn't it because it's a good example of what a, what an important age to find something that gets you on the right track and, and you talk about how as a child you were an unhealthiest child um you found the right thing but it didn't just make you love sport it made you actually be a better person because you wanted to improve academia as well i think so i, I don't think i'd be here doing any of these things that it wasn't for boxing. I think I would have gone to do a degree, and I'm pretty sure I would be a beast. I'd have diabetes and some kind of cardiovascular disease at, at, at this point in my life. Yeah. But go, go, going through those things as well, it, it, it makes the research that you do more personal. You know, because now I'm doing things and I've done stuff working with kids and other populations, and you can kind of put yourself in in, in their shoes. Mm. Just on that, and we'll get into your academic stuff in a minute, but you know, a lot of parents listen to the show and they're concerned about their kids not moving. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and we can all talk we, the, the obvious effects of that, but you know, what got you into boxing? Because you obviously weren't an athletic kid. Um, oh, yeah. and, and so, what was the trigger? And what, you know, because for a lot of parents out there, they do have inactive kids and they try to get their kids into it, but they just experience resistance. And I imagine, if right. I, if, uh, you know, I imagine before that moment you were probably resistant to exercise. So what got you into it and uh, what allowed you to be successful with it? That's pretty easy. It was Rocky. <laughs> oh, really? I loved watching the Rocky movies when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, it wasn't enough to, to, when I was 12 for me to stick doing it. Um, but um, um, I went back, as I said, on my 14th birthday and it was my uncle, who was also a coach, said to me, oh, we can make you heavyweight champion. He was joking around. I didn't know he was joking around. I turned up the club the, <laughs> the next day. And that was that. I just stuck to it. Wow. Well, so you, you basically had a bit of inspiration and then you had a good role model beside you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, that I know as well. Throughout my, my life, I'm sure you can as well. You can pinpoint a couple of people who've really been inspirational to you, right? And just in terms of turning a, a pivot, mm. there's tons of noise around you, but there's always that one person who helped help you make that decision that leads, leads you to wherever you are now. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so so tell us a little bit about your your um, the area and academia that you kind of really like to kind of specialize in. Yeah, so my area, um, in a nutshell, I look at the effects that lifestyle factors have on cardiovascular and and, card- and metabolic diseases. So you know, we we summarize that down to metabolic diseases. So I'm interested in lifestyle and cardiometabolic diseases. Um, and then because these things are complicated, I develop non-invasive methodology so that we can assess the effects that these different lifestyle factors are having on the body. Mm. And then lastly, because I don't think we should just be doing science for science sake, I'm interested in the translational aspect, you know, so how we turn these things into public health messages. And let's, let's talk about that because, you know, it is one of the... The, the struggles of academia is, is, is how does application happen? Uh, and so like, can you give some examples of how you work through that and um, how you actually make it so it is applicable to everyday people? <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, for a start, none of these things are, are quick you know, because by the time something gets to the point where the government say are going to make a policy uh, on something, that may be... 20 years worth of work that's led to that point. Um, so, for example, uh, last year we, uh, not we, I wasn't part of the team, but the, the new physical activity guidelines were released. And now that is a, a lot of work, and basically, so that um, we can narrow down the one good policy line, right? Which is that everyone should be getting 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week, Ad- adults, that is, different. For kids, but it, it, it takes a lot of work to, to get get to that. Same thing when you go to a doctor's office and you have screening done for breast cancer. Now the the, the way that that's done is pretty similar across practices, but it took a lot of work to get there in, in, in order to know what methods work in t- terms of screening. Like what is the public health message that you you tell people? How do you get people to pay attention to the to the health, how do you get them to follow up on these things? So, what a lot of the public doesn't see is all the things behind the scenes that led to that point. So you're you're seeing one line, but that might be a couple of decades worth of work. Mm. Um, so right now, the big area I'm interested in is sedentary behaviour, and we often confuse that. We think that sedentary behaviour and inactivity are the same things. That they're not. Inactivity is when one doesn't meet the physical activity guidelines, that 150 minutes. Um, sedentary behaviour is, well, basically the act of what we're doing right now. Okay. So it's defined as, as activities that are one and a half metabolic equivalents or less. And metabolic equivalents is just a, a standard way that we use in science to govern how much, uh, how intense a, a given activity is and, and how many calories we burn okay. doing that activity. And the evidence is accumulating that sedentary behavior and, and, and physical activity are leading to cardiometabolic diseases, but through different pathways that are biologically unique. So um, we need separate guidelines for sedentary behavior. So we have them for physical activity, but right now we don't know what to tell people in terms of breaking up their day to mitigate the risk associated with sitting for large parts of, of the day. Yeah. And I know, I know New Zealand's not not that different from yeah. 
you know, the, the US or elsewhere, the average person is sitting nearly eight hours a day. Um, and we don't know what to tell people in terms of breaking it up. Well, that's really fascinating, um, isn't it? Because you think today in today's world where, you know, you get your technology to tell you to go for a walk, you'd think that there would have been based on some kind of guidelines. So, but you're kind of saying there's no concrete evidence to, or concrete guideline that, that everyone's working towards. There's, there's no evidence. That 10,000 steps, there's, yeah. there's no evidence yeah. around that. The, the things that our Fitbits are telling us to do, and I've got one on myself, yeah. there's no evidence around that. It's not based on any hard evidence wow. right now. Anyway, the evidence is, is extremely lacking. Um, and there, so in terms of going back to your question, in terms of how we get to the policy stage where we tell the public what to do, right now we've... we've you know, sedentary behaviours such as sitting, we're all the way down here. Like physical activity, we're finally getting to a place where we're comfortable telling people what to do. But we know we're near there with step is to figure out how lots of sitting is leading to cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. We've got epidemiological evidence, you know, evidence where you look at associations between things. But in terms of the physiology, in terms of the mechanism, we don't know. Like our, our understanding is very limited. If we don't understand how that repeated exposure to sitting leads to cardiovascular disease, then how do we design an intervention mm. or some kind of strategy to break up sitting behaviour? We can't, right? Mm. Mm. So, and that's why none of this is evidence-based because we don't know what sitting is doing. Mm. So uh, our first step is to figure out what it's doing. And chances are it's probably different. Um, across the lifespan so what it's doing in older people might be different in people our age versus children mm. we, we need to know these things when we understand the mechanism then we can trial different strategies to see which one is most effective in terms of the mechanism that we've now identified then when we find a strategy that works okay it might work well in a lab right because I can control everything in a laboratory environment mm. But if it works out in the community, like in the public, in terms of now we're talking about ecological validity, that might be different because lots of things happen in the real world that may mean that that, that strategy that we've come up in the lab doesn't work so well, right? Not just that, it gets far more complicated because in terms of exercise, when you're exercised, you're not eating donuts, you're not doing things on your computer that are making you stressed and so on. Like, people are doing all kinds of things when they're sitting. Um, and yeah, so there's a chance are oh, you're turning up to work, you're sleep deprived. If you're sleep deprived, it's affecting, our, it's affecting your whole endocrine system, like how we're metabolizing things. It, it makes us crave sugars and not metabolize fat so well. Now you're eating a donut because you're craving sugars because you're sleep deprived, but you can't metabolize those sugars and fats. Um, very well, and at the same time, you're getting really stressed out about all those emails on your screen. Mm. So how do we how do we untangle all of that? Mm. So right now, again, we're right we're right down here. I think we're 15, 20 years away from really? having really effective policy for breaking up the sitting behaviour. So so, so it, it takes it takes a long time. Well, but so but then you know so so, so I'm going to ask you the question that no scientist can answer is, you know, if we're going to wait 15 years to get the answer. For those of us now, what what should we be looking to do? Yeah, I mean, in in general, we should be doing the things that we are told, right? Such yeah. as, I mean, we should be getting up and moving every so often. And we should be considering that 
separate from the advice for exercise in terms of we need to exercise for 30 minutes most days of the week, right? Yeah. At least a moderate intensity. We should be making sure we get eight hours sleep each night and we should be making sure that we have a balanced meal. Forget about all the crazy diets and so on. Yeah. We should just be having a balanced meal. The issue is that there's just so much noise out there, right? Yeah. So if, if I ask you how many messages that you've got over the past month in terms of doing something for your health, I bet those number of messages counts to at least a thousand, right? Yeah. Not just that, you've got everyone and your uncle now telling you what, what you should be doing because you've got people who are not in the fitness industry, they're not nutritionists, and they're just spouting out misinformation on the internet. Yeah. Anyone can do that yeah. now. So if I'm telling you a thousand things you need to do for your health, which one of those are you going to do? Mm. Or are you just going to hide because it's just all, all too bewildering, it's all too confusing, so you're going to think, man, no matter what I do, I'm never going to be doing enough. Right? It's true, isn't that what you're going to do is never going to be enough? We just need to figure out what those key messages are. Well, but then, the, the, and um, one of the criticisms of science is we get so many contradictory, like if we look at, like your area is probably less controversial than nutrition, um, you know, because nutrition, you know, it's a, it's a hard hard kind of can to open, isn't it? Because there's, you know, and so we get, we do get mixed messages from science as well. And so then, I, I totally agree. I think there's a lot of cowboys out there who aren't helping. Uh, but then also, since in some ways in science, it murks the water as well, doesn't it? Yeah, um, but then you know, and my colleagues and I just wrote an issue on this, and he, he called it the research telephone. Okay. In terms of you know, you're doing this research, you're coming up with some some conclusions, but then folks on Twitter and in the news are picking this up, and often turn times they're not getting the message okay. correct, and a lot of the research that we're doing is not ready for prime time. Uh, you know, it, okay. and if you if you do something and you do it well, okay, that's great. But someone else should be replicating it. Yeah. You know, we we test an hypothesis a number of times. We come up with a working theory. That's when we can start to um, do uh, systematic reviews of the literature and another technique called a meta-analysis. And a, a meta-analysis is when you take all the available work in the area and you try and do a quantitative synthesis to come up with one overall number. And and that. That's the work that policymakers are looking at. They're waiting until there's enough science that we have systematic reviews and meta-analysis, and we have a degree of certainty in terms of this may be um, having a po positive influence mm. on on one's health. Um, but yeah, saying that as well, you know, a, a lot of the things that do make the news as well are the most novel things. Most novel. Are not normally the most sound science, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're, we're just, it's something new, it's, it's newsworthy, and the journalist is not going to go and do their due diligence in terms of unpacking, you know, okay, how well was that research done, how many other people have done it, etc., etc., right? It should be a process, and I, I guess that's part of the new, new age, the digital age, right? We want everything right now, we want to snip it right now. Yeah. But these things, these things just take time. Well, and, and like I read a book a while ago, and it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a book by a guy who was trying to teach people how to be influencers. Uh, and one of the things he talked about in this book, which was quite disgusting really, was basically kind of look at where 
the norm is and always put yourself slightly outside of the norm because then you look different and then you can draw attention. And, you know, we talk about people trying to, you know, people who aren't even nutritionists giving nutrition advice. Um, and, um, and so, and he says, because that's where you tend to, that's where you can really build a kind of a cult behind yourself, basically, uh, because you're, you're the person fighting against the norm and the norm's always got it wrong. Uh, and we see this a lot in nutrition, don't we? We see this a lot of, you know, like, you know, blaming of the standard, you know, the advice that has been given out by policymakers uh, and people who are kind of doing extreme kind of things around nutrition to ultimately sell a product for themselves, really. Um, and so I suppose the question there goes is, who should we trust? And how do we, you know, like if people are listening to this right now, the everyday, everyday Joe public who is confused because there's a thousand different messages, um, but we've got to remember a lot of people giving a thousand different messages understand marketing really well, so they know how to say the right things in the right way that make great kind of fear and curiosity. Um, who should we trust when it comes to taking good advice around health and nutrition? Well, I mean, if it is coming out as government policy, for, for the most part, it's gone through pretty rigorous review, right? And we have got to the point where people, there is enough literature out there where people are doing systematic reviews and meta-analysis and, and so on to come up with, you know, one overall number saying, you know, this is good or, all right, it may be good, there may be some risk, but the, the good outweighs the bad, right? Therefore, we can make a recommendation. Um, and again, those things don't come out from the government all the time because these things do take a lot of time. Yeah. Um, I, I would say they're the kind of things that we can trust. The, the average thing that we're seeing on social media, I, I, would, I would steer clear of. Um, if it's in a reputable um, news um, paper, you know, that, I think for most part that they can be stuff we can trust as long as it is someone credible is, is written the story and unfortunately a lot of tabloids spout things and so on right and they're just looking for sensationalism because um new sales yeah um you know and and for the most part just stick to the basic tenants everyone wants to get on the latest fad because they think they're gonna kind of get fit quick or get slim quick you know what other whatever alternative of get rich quick we're trying to do with our bodies and it just doesn't work like that like if you get an adequate sleep if you're exercising regularly if you're not sitting down for too long um during a day and you're having a balanced plate right forget about all the fad nutrition the government's never going to recommend any of those most nutritionists are never going to recommend any of those fad diets mm. so forget about all those things just try and live sensibly it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, so, oh, you go, sorry. We harden ourselves as well, right? So, sorry, say that again. You cut out a little bit. Say that again. Oh, no, Sam, I just, oh, many of us make it too hard on ourselves by listening to all these additional sources and, 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 you know, trying to do these things quickly. You end up just making it harder on yourself. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to um, those exercise recommendations, the 150 of moderate to intense exercise a week, um, when it comes to the application of that, what do you find are some of the things that are really important to actually make sure people do that? Okay, there, that is an excellent question. Because, so, and I'm saying this as a physiologist, yeah. right? 
Now, we know exercise is good. We, we don't know down to a personal level what's best for anyone. Otherwise, there still won't be a field left. What we don't do very well is getting people to exercise and get people to adhere to the exercise long term, right, to make life changes. Those things are far, far more complicated than trying to figure out the um, physiology. Mm. And a, a large part of it comes down to, you know, what motivates you, right? Um, uh, in terms of, you know, what what do you want to get out of the exercise? I mean, th there might be some short-term things in terms of you want to look good, you want to feel good about yourself, you, you want to be able to do things with the... The grandkids, you, you want to be able to, maybe you're a slightly older adult, you want to keep doing things with your own children, you just want to have a high quality of life, you know, try and figure out those things that motivate you, like, try and filter out all the noise and, and figure out those things. Along with that, a good social support network just pays dividends in many of these things, right? And that's why I always recommend, you know, at least people starting off, and I do realise different things for different populations, and we can get into that. But your average person, I recommend go and start with a personal trainer just to start with. I get, I'm not trying to play down anyone's yeah. career. Like a personal trainer is not going to tell you anything magic to do. They're just going to make sure you're doing things soundly. They are going to knock down some of the barriers in terms of you going into the gym, or maybe it's not the gym, right? The gym's not right for everybody. It might be out in the park might be doing resistance bands at home, whatever it may be, like it, someone to help you feel comfortable about it. Not just that, then there's accountability. And a good personal trainer will try and figure out ways to help with adherence. Say, if you miss sessions, right? It, it doesn't mean the whole week is, is lost. Um, and a lot of people think, oh, I've missed this one, the whole mm -hmm. thing's gone to put, so might as well give up. These are things that go through people's heads. To get that person back on track and realize, okay, we've got flexibility in our program here, right? Yeah, you know, we we design this thing to start with. It doesn't have to be rigid. It's dynamic. It's going to grow with you. I'm here to help you you through that. And it, it may not be a, a personal trainer. Like many indigenous communities, it might be doing things with the community, yeah. right? Doing things with the with with the family. But again, there's like that social support network within. In that system, um, some of the things are more complicated. Because uh, we, you know, one way that as scientists we look at this is from a social ecological model. Like there are personal factors, you know, related to your ability to exercise, maybe health issues, and so on. There are physical environmental factors, um, and then there are social environmental factors such as some of the things we just talked about. Mm. The physical environmental ones are the ones that are much more difficult, right? Not everyone is safe to walk or has um, pathways or they don't have access to public transportation and or they can't afford public transportation. So those things are a lot more difficult and not everyone can use a personal trainer because they, they can't afford it. Mm. So they're, they're things that we need help from a higher level, right? And, and that's why... And that, that comes down to how, you know, where we're focusing our government healthcare on. And so that's a much, much bigger issue, I think.
instead of being the ambulance at the bottom, it's kind of trying to put your attention on creating those communities, creating those facilities, uh, creating leaders that can kind of open that up to the community. Yeah, yeah, I haven't heard the ambulance at the bottom one, but yeah, it's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we do that in every country. There's an ambulance at the bottom. Yeah. Like you say, we, we know if we focus on physical activity from top down, we're going to end up saving money yeah. through the healthcare system, right? Problem is, those things don't fit into an election, do they? No. Not in New Zealand, not here, nowhere, because these things might take 10 years until you get dividends. And the average voter is going to forget about those decisions that were made come 10 years' time. And the person going up to be the person in charge of the party is not going to wait 10 years' time to see any dividends, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. So these things get far more complicated. What other kind of things do people need to be aware of in regards to cardiovascular, you know, in the areas that you you, you look in? Oh, well, maybe actually, you know, they talk about 150 minutes. Uh, the guidelines of, of, do they kind of split up what type of exercise people should be doing? Yeah, uh, so now they're different um, by age group. A bit. Oh, okay. so for, but for kids, it should be 300 minutes a week. So kids should be getting 60 minutes a day, every day. And the, there's a lot of flexibility in the guidelines. Running around, but also doing some strengthening and bone strengthening exercises. And that doesn't mean they have to go do resistance training or anything. That that can be. You know, there's a lot of nonsense out there about kids can't do this and that because it might affect their growth plates and so on. No evidence to support any of it, quite oh, yeah. contrary. Wow. Um, but it might be things such as, you know, skipping rope or things where they're going to jump around a lot and, yeah. and stress their joints or are doing circuit training as, as part of their rugby practice or whatever it may be that they're getting balanced exercises um in the the, the general population it says 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous per week and at least two days of some kind of resistance okay or strengthening training um and that you know this part hopefully it's going to grow in importance more um the, the strength training part doesn't get another tension mm. um if we think about it in terms of disease the strength training part tackles different risk factors than does the moderate to vigorous physical activity for, for example um obviously we've got um uh, uh a, a type two the diabetes pandemic right and i say pandemic it's not just in one country it's in every country in new zealand there's big problems like there is here in the us and there is in the uk and australia and so on it's everywhere but you know I, the, the the aerobic activity on its own is not going to be best for tackling type 2 diabetes type 2 diabetes is uh an inability of the body to, to regulate glucose levels so that could be due to in, impaired glucose release, impaired glucose delivery, or at the level of the muscle, an impaired ability of the muscle to suck up the glucose out of the bloodstream, right? One or more of those things is broken in people with type 2 diabetes. But at the end of the day, most of that glucose is going down a sink, and that sink is, is your skeletal muscle. The two biggest sinks are your quads and your bum. If you, if you don't focus on that musculature, you don't improve the quality of that musculature, you've got less places for that, that, that glucose to go. The aerobic training is not going to be 
is not going to do as well in terms of improving that muscle quality. Mm. Resistance training is, is far superior for that. And you know, related to some of the some of the evidence that um, does get a bit confusing. Back to your earlier point. Yes. So some doctors have been a bit apprehensive about prescribing resistance training in the past because they think it may um, increase the burden on the heart. There's been some evidence showing it improves, it increases the stiffness of the heart that's supplying blood around the body. So you know, if, if this aorta gets stiff, then the heart has to work harder and harder to pump blood out. Um, uh, I had um, graduate students of mine not long ago published a, a meta-analysis on this showing, okay, yeah, it may increase stiffness, so it, it may increase the burden on the heart a little bit, but only in young, fit, healthy people. In older people who have cardiovascular disease, risk factors is not doing anything. Oh. So you're getting all the benefits, but you're not getting that risk that, you know, potentially we thought was associated with that. Um, resistance training so I think that that should be an important part and it has become an important part of the guidelines for older folks now as well the older folks should be getting 150 minutes a week but more emphasis is now placed on that resistance slash strength training as well. one of the biggest problems we have in the elderly is with falls it's yeah, one of our yeah. um, leading causes of hospitalization. So, you know, it's costing a lot of money to treat these people with falls. Not just that, leading cause of, of um, traumatic brain injury from the falls. And if someone's had one fall, they have a very high, high likelihood of having a fall again. So now the guidelines are suggesting things like Tai Chi, you know, things that are gonna stress yep. their, their balance system. And, and there are things that you can do when you're out um, doing your regular activities as well, such as you know, when you're getting people to walk through the park, make sure you build some hill climbs into that because yeah. that's going to strengthen the ankles. A large part of the falls is because there's a lot of weakness and instability around the ankles. You, you can strengthen those up um, by getting people to walk uphill. There are things such as that you can do. And it's important for older people to, to understand that you can still get stronger. You know, like, um, you know, I think people think that once they get to a certain age, uh, you know, now you may not be as strong as what you could have been when you were 20, but there's always you can still make gains with your strength and cardiovascular fitness at any age, can't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the uh, it doesn't matter your age, you're going to get just as much gain from it. Um, you have just as much potential. In fact, because a lot of old people are starting off from a lower starting yeah. point, they're going to see more immediate gains. Mm. And you know, the, the, the other part of the resistance or strength kind of training being important for older people is because as you age something called sarcopenia happens so you start to lose muscle mass yeah and um, just some like basic physiology we, we've got two main types of muscle tissue one is called type one muscle and that muscle is good for long distance exercise and those are the ones that are important for the strength and power kind of actions and the things that, you know, the, the kind of activities that are going to stop you from falling and so on. As we age, we lose those type 2 ones selectively. Um, I don't think there's anything special about those type 2 ones. It's just 
they're harder to recruit than the type white type one fibers because you only recruit them when you are going at a certain intensity. Mm. So if you're not using them, you lose them. Um, so we're losing a lot of those those fibers, and you know the the way that we do activate them is from doing high intensity exercise or resistance training. Mm. So we don't have to get older people out doing CrossFit or you know some new crazy hit program or so on. It it could be going with someone like you to the gym and just doing some very sound resistance exercises, albeit with older folks working a little, little bit more around the knees and around the ankles, some perhaps around the mm. um, um, What other question did I have for you? What, what advice would you give to somebody, you know, because the thing about that 150 minutes, like if we look at, if we look at, like that's most of the population doing nothing. You know, so, so so the 150 minutes is a good guideline, but it's still a big step up for a lot of people. Um, and mm-hmm. I know you talked about using a personal trainer and that, but what would you say to the person who's overweight, um, you know, is kind of your classic case of the, the heading towards cardiovascular problems, health problems in many areas? What would be yeah. some advice you'd give to that person? Yeah, well... For a start, if you are overweight, the guidelines are 300 minutes per week because you, you okay. don't, you, you can't burn off. On, the, the focus now should be on burning calories. Okay. It's, and that doesn't have to be high intensity exercise. That could be low to moderate. Yep. Just about getting that time in so we can burn off um, calories. Um, but I wouldn't look at that as something you have to do right now. Yeah. You know, take baby steps. Again, go and seek help from community if you do have the funds to do it seek help from personal trainer like build up that support base and it could be you know what today i'm just during my lunch break i'm just i'm going to walk five minutes Mm. like get that done every day right the the key is getting into routine same with everything else like humans like routine same with our dogs right we like routine just get into the routine do five minutes a day every day next week do 10 minutes a day just go for a walk don't worry about running don't go about doing anything crazy just get into routine and really slowly, slowly build it up because it's not a race. It's a, this is something this should be seen as a lifestyle change, right? We're, we're not trying to get a quick fix. We're not trying to lose all the weight right now. We're trying to make a lifestyle change, not just for the body weight, but to improve quality of life. Mm-hmm. A lifetime goal. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, just on nutrition. Um... What's the advice that you guys are giving out right now around kind of nutrition guidelines? Because it has changed recently, hasn't it? Um, to, to be honest, nutrition is not oh, you're, you're, my. Okay. Okay. No, no. So I, I look at nutrition, but in terms of interactions with other things, such as we've been looking at interactions between um, taking in lots of sugar and prolonged sitting to see whether if you have lots of sugar, it makes the effects of prolonged sitting even worse. And Yes, it does. We we found that what we expected. So if you sit there and eat a donut, it's going to be much worse for your arteries, your, your vascular system, than otherwise. Um, but I'm sure like most really good nutritionists, they're gonna they're not going to focus on any of the fad diets. They're just going to tell you to have a balanced plate, right? Mm-hmm. And you know we do have changes overnight. Like the, the advice that we're having. It's pretty consistent, right? In terms of, we we need to be having a certain amount of protein, and we need to have a certain amount of fiber in our diets. 
I think too, too many people now are on this low carbohydrate fix and they take all fiber out of their diet. And now the, 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 every year, the, one of the, the key um, journals in the field called The Lancet, so one of the really big medical journals, has this um, uh, global index of disease. And nutrition continues to be one of the key factors playing a role in, in the global burden of disease. But it seems that now the most important dietary factor from nutrition is the lack of fiber. Because oh, wow. you know, people are taking bread and stuff like that out of their diets. But if you're eating bread and it's whole grain bread and it's got lots of fiber in it, that's good. Our bodies need that. Mm. And don't realize they're actually doing more harm than good. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, last, last question, a question I always love to ask everyone, is where is your struggle with health and fitness? Where's my struggle? Yeah, because like, uh, you and I, we, we kind of stand as experts, and we are, we are healthy people, um, and we, we, have, you know, we kind of live a healthy lifestyle. Um, but I always think it's important just to kind of show that we are human, <laughs> and, and we do have mm -hmm. our own little kind of struggles with it. So do you have any struggles yourself with your health and fitness? Yeah, well, a couple right now. Um, well, what well, been ongoing? So one is as a result of being in sport and being addicted to it, I, I've overtrained multiple times. Um, when I first moved to America, I had what they call athletes' chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. For six months, it was really difficult for me to get out of bed. My hair went grey, my eyes went grey. Oh. I lost about ten pounds, I think. My skin was really pasty. And I slowly recovered. I just started doing a little bit, you know, at a time. But then you get addicted to it again and you overtrain again. Um, so I've done that multiple times. And as a result of that, my energy levels have never been what they were after, like, my third time overtraining. Um, so now, you know, probably like many people, uh, my energy levels vary a lot. Um, and uh, I also had surgery last year. I had what's called thoracic outlet syndrome. And it's probably related from boxing and doing so much with the left arm through jabbing. The muscle was really compacting here and it was compressing my nerve and artery. My arm was numb oh, and I was wow. getting lots of pain down here. And it, and I've been living with this for a while until I, I, I had this surgery. The surgery cut out my first rib. Um, so I'm still, I'm still recovering from that. Um, but, you know, just in terms of the struggles, yeah, I have days when... Because of this, but I always do something. So you know, I'm limited time, limited vigor. I'll go into the gym and I might just do one set of things that day instead of three sets. You know, you can get that done in ten or fifteen minutes, and that way, you know, you're still not losing any of the momentum that you you you've built up. Yeah. I think anyone can do that, right? Mm. Or like today, I was really tired. I I go running every day with the dog. Today I was really tired, but I just ran for 10 minutes just to do something. I think I've got a bit of a cold or flu yep. coming on as well. But just do a 10-minute run, as long as you're doing something, right? How do you, how do you take that with your identity? Because like, like you, my big part of my identity is my exercising self. Um, how, do you, how do you navigate the emotional side of going through what you've been through in the last period of time? Um, yeah, it is tough. And... Um, I, I feel like my identity may have changed a bit as a result because I, I can't exercise as much as I used to. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm still yeah. running every day and doing weights several times a week. 
But I used to go at it really hard, and I can't do that anymore. Um, but I'm, I'm still doing what's important for my health, and I feel good about it. And you know, the, exercise should just be one part of who your yeah. who your personality is, right? Like my family is important too, and my work and, and other things. It's just all part of that mix. It's about having balance. Yeah, I think. No, you're you're totally right. Because I, I I myself as a young man, I was very much. Um, just all exercise and and I I created a very vulnerable person because if you took away exercise I really wasn't much else out of it and your answer there is re- reflective of myself whereas nowadays I'm a person who has kind of six esteem points in my life I have my career I have my business I have um, music I have my family now exercise is one of my esteem points but uh, I'm not so dependent on it and so I can enjoy what exercise brings to my life but it's not the be all and end all of my life. And so you can kind of have a, a healthier, you know, so what you're saying there is that through this time, um, because you are a more rounded person, you're able to navigate it much more healthily. I think so, yeah. I mean, exercise, like I said, like anything else, it become that can become addictive, right? Yeah. And when you start to make negative gains, so it's about having balance well, in your life. And we've all seen those people who are pretty badly injured and still exercising in a really unhealthy way because they can't, you know, then, you know, they have nothing else. Yeah, well, we see that in a lot of sports people as yeah. well, right? Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> exercise is good for you, but the most part of sport is not not at a high level. Yeah, those folks are folks are damaging their bodies and they're not enjoying exercise either. Yeah. They don't all necessarily live quite healthily after mm. uh, sport. You know, and I say that as someone who's been around. Boxing. I see a lot of my peers boxing and, and how they are now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, well, that's a bloody hard sport. Hey Lee, thank you so much for your time today. It's been um absolutely awesome. If, if people want to get in contact with you or they want to follow you, do you do you kind of promote anything or Um No, not, I probably should be doing better at, at that. <laughs> I mean now and again I'll send something out on, on Twitter. Um uh but no I don't have any I have a fa- like a lab Facebook group, but it's just for my personal lab to maintain, help them maintain networks and yep. and so on. Well, well, thank you so much for your time today, and keep doing what you're doing. Um, it, you know, like it's obviously important work that we get people moving and healthy, and you know, like it's in a world where this is a big problem, your kind of work is really important. So, thank you for coming on the show today. Cheers, appreciate it. Alrighty, team. So that's my interview with Lee Stoner. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. I love this idea of who do you trust, and um, I think we're often when we're in a vulnerable place and we want to create change, it's easy to look for people who um, are going to provide quick fix solutions. And you know, it's really interesting hearing Lee talk about how you know, like, basically, if something's got to you from a government recommendation, it's pretty much got like, twenty years of work behind it. And he's saying, like, you know, think about that sedentary talk he was talking about there—that it's probably fifteen years away before they're going to have a real understanding of the implications upon your health. And so, when they finally get there, that's that's not something that's just lightly thought out. And uh, I do see the frustration on a lot of people of Lee's level who have spent, you know, this whole life studying an area and. And kind of developing this system around how to actually prove something that can be duplicatable and so on. Uh, and then you get these people who it's kind of come out of nowhere with no real education at all and kind of sell a pipe dream. So 
it's just something to think about as an overall. So hopefully you got something from there. Sorry about the, the, the Skype line. It was a bit frustrating, but at the same time, I think you would have got a lot out of that interview with Lee. So that's pretty much today's show done and dusted, which is pretty cool. Um, if you want to become a patron of the show, please go to bevanjamesisles.com. Another thing that you can do that can really help in this podcast is you could send out, I'll go to your podcatcher and put a review up about the podcast, or tell your friends and family about it if you enjoy the show. I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time for the next episode of the Bevan James Isles. As always, keep being you.